Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Deputy Editor at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each month we're delving a little deeper into some of the conversations being had in our community, learning more about exciting innovations and probing some of the issues we're facing. This month we'll be discussing the international development sector, what it's achieved but also whether it needs to evolve to be more effective in the future. We'll be chatting to Stephanie Draper, Chief Executive of the Development Umbrella Group Bond, Richard Hawkes, Chief Executive of the British Asian Trust, and Amanda Cosi mcquashi Chief Executive of Christian Aid, about what changes need to happen. We'll also be hearing from Chloe Setter, Head of Anti-Trafficking at the children's charity Lumos, and their campaign encouraging people not to volunteer in orphanages abroad. And Editorial Assistant Natasha and I will be joined by Martin Dicker, Director of People at UNICEF UK, about his charity's decision to give all new parents a whole year of parental leave. But first, it's January... It's January. It's the longest January in living memory. It's the longest January that's ever occurred. It is quite extraordinary. We're not even out of it yet. And I remember coming back into the office on January 3rd and it was like World War Three was trending yeah. because of all of the tensions with Iran. And I was thinking, it's January 3rd. Why do we have World War Three? Australia's on fire. Australia's completely on fire. On yep. fire. Australia, no more Australia, no more koalas. Uh, we've had uh, fractions in the royal house with uh, Harry and Meghan saying, we've had enough of this and we're going to Canada. A constitutional crisis, apparently. Well, uh, yes, and the Harrods, no, Harrods, Madame Two Swords, need new waxwork. That's terrible. <laughs> Labour leadership contest. Yeah, need a new Labour leader. That's not even going to be decided until March. So we're not even a third of the way through that whole process yet. Um, allegedly, the Saudi crown prince has hacked Jeff Bezos in some really recent weird news. Yeah, probably wanted like a really nice Amazon deal, and uh, and and finally we've got the uh, this fun virus um, yeah. which is is spreading from China. So um, that's yeah. So, yeah. so that's where we're up to. Yeah, um, and it's what's the date? Twenty uh, third. So we're like two thirds. No, three quarters of the way through the month. Three quarters of the way through the month. So it's the twenty third of January, and um, this is where we're at. So twenty twenty yeah. is going to be a busy year by the looks of things. And, well, I guess to help things along, we should probably just, like, push on and and get on with the podcast. Yeah. All right, let's do it. On any given day, thousands of projects across the world are changing and saving lives, thanks to the efforts of UK aid charities. Since 2015, Aid from the UK has supported more than 14 million children into education. It has also allowed 5.6 million births to take place safely, saving the lives of 80,100 mothers and 226,000 babies. And it has provided almost 50 million life-saving mosquito nets. But it's undeniably been a difficult time for charities in the past few years. In 2018, the aid sector was rocked by the safeguarding scandal, with MPs accusing aid organisations of complacency verging on complicity over endemic sex abuses. There's also been furious debate around whether the imagery it uses in fundraising and awareness campaigns perpetuates white saviour narratives. More broadly, questions have been raised about the effectiveness of the international aid model and whether the way money is allocated and spent lifts people out of poverty or perpetuates problems. To discuss this, I'm joined by Stephanie Draper, Chief Executive of the Development Umbrella Group Bond, Richard Hawkes, Chief Executive of the British Asian Trust, and Amanda Cozy mcwashi Chief Executive of Christian Aid. So to start off with, um, for each of you, what do you think development charities' biggest achievements have been? So I think there's a lot of things that the UK aid sector can be proud of. So firstly, UK NGOs are always at the forefront of humanitarian crises, be it fighting Ebola in the DRC, responding to Cyclone Adai, or 
tackling devastation in Syria where 6.2 million people still remain displaced. So here, basic services such as clean water and healthcare simply wouldn't be there if it weren't for the NGOs working tirelessly. But they've also been successful in terms of development work, so providing and working with communities so that they have the infrastructure to cope with these emergencies and provide better opportunities. So millions of women and girls in the world's poorest countries now have access to contraception, access to education. Uh, Millions of lives have been saved through vaccinations and healthcare programmes. Lots and lots of progress in in that space. And at the same time, the UK NGO sector are critical in helping to shape the overall development agenda. So they made a massive contribution to the Sustainable Development Goals um, and providing this critical framework for the world to be working towards. They also hold the UK government to account to ensure that we spend our aid in the most effective way helping the world's poorest people. Let me add to that uh, and say, for me, I see our biggest achievements in two ways. I think one are really in the area of um, raising awareness, policy influencing, changing the narrative and the development um, discourse. And uh, over the last 70 years, what we can be proud of contributing to are things like the debt cancellation, for example. Um, when you think of make poverty history, you know, we were really key and pivotal within that, that discourse. Uh, when you look at conversation that started on climate change, actually started quite a while back. And we've been contributing to, to all that. When you look at the journey from Mexico to Nairobi to Beijing, culminating in things like the Beijing Platform for Action, these have been really critical and we've contributed. But the biggest achievement that I would like to, to really reflect on for me is the untold story. Um, of of UK uh, charities, international charities. And normally we hear of these as one story of a woman in Ethiopia or of children in Zambia or maybe of the Rohingya in Bangladesh. What we don't hear is just the combined and collective uh, narrative and impact that uh, that that we've uh, we've achieved in reaching millions and millions and millions of people, and I'm not um, overblowing it. Um, hopefully, later on, I can talk a little bit about what we haven't done. But for now, I think that that's been our biggest achievement, and that story remains untold. I would agree with everything that Stephanie Amanda has said. I think I think there are so many examples that you could take of individual actions that all of the different individual NGOs will have been responsible for that will have had a huge impact on people's lives and when as Amanda said when you when you add all of that up together that collective impact will be absolutely enormous but I think I think it's when the sector comes together creatively and well that it has its biggest influence as Stephanie said things like the the role that the UK NGO sector will have played in um, shaping the Sustainable Development Goals, the role that it played years before that in shaping the Millennium Development Goals, building on, as Amanda referred to, Make Poverty History, but coming out of that was the huge campaign for the 0.7%, for example, and the fact that the UK government is one of not very many governments around the world that actually achieves that uh, is definitely a result of the effective pressure that the NGOs have put on all of the different political parties here 
uh, and the way that we've raised awareness amongst the British public. So that that is, you know, almost a non-negotiable now that people, you, you know, will live with that commitment of that 0.7. Okay, we've got to, we have to keep working on that, but it's a great achievement, I think, for the collective work of the sector. Um, but Richard, I know you've said uh, in the past that you believe the aid sector could have achieved a lot more than it has done. And, and why is why is it that you say that? Very simply, and again, I'm sure that most people, well, it'd be interesting if people do disagree. I think just because you've made a lot of progress and achieved a lot doesn't mean that you've achieved everything you could have done. Um, I think in in 1970, there were 2.2 billion people living in extreme poverty. Today, it's estimated, depending on who you listen to, it's about 700 million. So in 50 years, we've reduced extreme poverty from 2.2 billion to 700 million. Well, on the one hand, that means there's a lot of people that have come out of extreme poverty. On the other hand, it's 2020 and there are still 700 million people around the world living in extreme poverty. Millions of girls that don't get any education. Estimated a billion people worldwide that don't have access to healthcare. Nobody can say that's good enough. Um, And when you look at the amount of NGOs that are, uh, and this isn't just about the aid sector more widely, it's not just about NGOs, but you look at how many NGOs there are, you look at how much money there is in in official government aid uh, or in philanthropy um, that's going into aid. And there are just so many examples of where there's duplication, things could be more effective, we could have been more successful overall. And so, yes, there's been a lot of success and a lot of progress, but if there'd been a bit more change during that time as well, we could have achieved a hell of a lot more. And I was curious to find, uh, Amanda, Stephanie, what you make of that, what, what your response is to that. Well, I, I mean, I agree. I think we can always be better. I think that the sector needs to be constantly reinventing itself in the light of different changes, be that climate change, other threats. Um, I think that there are shifts that need to be made. We need to be more positive and advocate for the work that we do. Um, We need to be more connected. We need to link up with other forms of financing. Aid is only a small contribution to what's needed to bring people out of poverty, to give people better lives, to um, actually enable them to make the progress um, that they want. We need to be constantly learning about what works and examining what doesn't work and scaling the things that do work, not just looking for scale um, regardless. So there's lots to, um, to go for. I think that the sector is up for that. It's full of people who are really committed to creating great change and constantly looking and working together to, to optimise the ways we do that has to be an essential part of our, our role as Bond and the sector's role collectively. I think that um, the, the things that we could have done differently as a sector is to really speak more to the issue of the fundamental dysfunctions of, of the models that we're working with. We are working with an economic system worldwide uh, that is fundamentally hardwired to continuously uh, favour those who are already extremely privileged in terms of power and wealth. And it's within those solutions, those models, that we are trying to find solutions to help the poor and those that are um, displaced uh, because of conflict, because of violence and because of climate change. And so we'll always be limited in what that can achieve. The latest Oxfam report that just came out, I think this week, clearly shows that, you know, we have just, I think, around 2,000 billionaires that own so much wealth 
in the world, and that is unacceptable. So the level of inequalities during this period has grown. The gap between those who have and those who do not has increased. And I think that's where we could have stepped in as a sector because we development is not foreign to us. We go, we see these communities, and we understand when we do our analysis and evidence that uh, we are dealing with the power systems and economic systems that, um, you know, based on capitalism, that are hardwired to deliver certain uh, benefits, and it's not for everybody. So when we think of survival of the fittest, it cannot be survival of individual fitness. It has to be survival of the human race um, together with our planetary um, provisions and the planet. And if there's one single, I think, regret is that, therefore, we didn't really analyze that and we didn't then package it in a way that we could um, engage with governments, with the private sector and with other partners to address the fundamental dysfunctionalities of the systems that we're working with. And it's interesting that you mentioned kind of power structures and power imbalance because Mm -hmm. one of the kind of major criticisms that I've been hearing lately of the international development sector is that kind of given the power balance that exists in having kind of rich countries giving to developing countries, which often former colonies, the power dynamic is always going to be unequal and that the white saviour narrative becomes really difficult to avoid. Is, Is that something you're kind of conscious of? I think I think you have to be conscious of it. But let me let me respond to your question in this way. I think the white saviour uh, mentality or approach is symptomatic of uh, much deeper uh, issues. And uh, and we've talked about power. I think what has happened is we're working within uh, a terrain that has completely shifted. If you look at um, what we have here at home for people who have supported us throughout, we have homelessness on our doorsteps. We have uh, a study that shows that there are over 4 million uh, people living in poverty in this country. We have uh, issues of climate change that have all of a sudden changed everything. At the same time as that has happened, in uh, places like Africa, in Asia, um, due to technology and uh, and increased knowledge, what you see is um, that people have come into themselves, the energy that is coming uh, through there. And therefore, the story of development has to be told differently to reflect this change. Um, at the moment, what we've also been victims of, no, that's not right, not victims, I think we have contributed to the narrative of, uh, or perception of white saviour. Mm-hmm. I wrote an article um, last year in response to this, and I said, for me, the Nigerian author Aditya Chimamanda actually puts this, captures this really well, the danger of a single story, that um, when we tell stories, it's about power. It's who's got the power, who's telling what story, and what reality are they therefore creating? The white saviour approach creates a narrative that says there is one social group of people in the world who are forever jumping to save a different set of, of people. And we have to change that because actually it's not true, it's not accurate, and therefore it sends the wrong message to the public. Well, I really agree with Amanda. I think we have to move beyond this idea of developed and developing. I think we're, as countries, we're all on a journey and we need to be acting in solidarity with those who um, need support in terms of making progress. This is a really live discussion for our members. You know, we need to be 
people need to be able to make decisions about their own futures. If someone um, from Angola were to arrive in Liverpool and say, right, we're going to do these programmes, everybody would be up in arms. But actually having a sort of um, a collaborative conversation about that um, is really important. And I was in Ethiopia last year seeing some of our members' projects and actually that kind of shift to local decision-making, all of the work was um, being delivered by Ethiopians, with Ethiopians, working with the community. I'm sure that's, um, that's true um, of Christian aid. And so it is no longer true to be illustrating this as um, a lot of white people coming in and doing things in, country, in other countries. Um, I think we are making progress, but actually the kind of balance of accountability needs to shift and and there is always going to we have to recognize that there's a power imbalance with funding coming from one place and perhaps knowledge coming from another and then lived experience being on the ground how can we value all of those currencies so that we're able to make better decisions into the future I think we're I think we're all at risk of violently agreeing with each other. <laughs> um, but let me just add. If, if, I mean, some of the if you bring both of those points together about could we have achieved more, plus the sort of you, you know this approach, the white savior approach, and inverted commas. I think um, I think we'd all we'd all agree that a lot of this is based on where power is uh, and where the power comes from, the people making decisions or the donors or the, a combination of that. And I think that there have been some. Great examples. If you just look at the NGO part of of the aid sector, there have been some great examples of NGOs really, really trying to change the way that decisions are made and where power sits to give agency to to people across the global south rather than decisions being made in the north. But there's still a huge number of examples where that that doesn't happen, and there are lots of organisations where um, ultimate decisions are made in the UK. Um, and funding decisions are made in the UK and the allocation of funds are made in the UK um, or in the north. And I think that, you know, we should all be doing everything we can to give up some of that power and to enable processes and structures whereby decision making within our own organisations can be made more closer to where the actual work is happening and involving the people whose lives we're, we're claiming uh, to play a role in, you know, seeking to influence positively, they're they're influencing that, and I think that there's a lot of, you know, you read, to, you know, even today you can read about steps that NGOs are taking to do this. But this was a live conversation 25 years ago, um, and it shouldn't still be happening now. I think two things. One is um, that this model. Um, I think we have to be honest and candid as a sector. This model worked for us in terms of fundraising for many years because we were able to send people out there to come and tell this story and um, people in this country were able to relate to the storyteller and so on. And, you know, it, it got us the support that we needed at that point. And so in trying to find solutions for this, we have to go back to what did we contribute to creating this, you know, white saviour uh, mentality in such a way that it has become, um, it was normalised. So that's number one. The second thing is in terms of the power and where the, uh, I agree that to, to some degree, decisions about money are made here, maybe in, you know, powerful countries. However, Let's let's if we break this down, the majority, the the, the bulk of the resources uh, that go into development and that are, that are, is going to um, solve the poverty problem comes from different parts. Mm. So ODA is just one, 
you know, you have uh, remittances, you've got investments, you've got um, these communities are not just sitting there waiting for somebody to come and help them. You know, let's disabuse that completely. These people are like you and me. And when you are struggling in your own home in this country, you're not going to sit there and just wait. You're going to get up and try to look for opportunities, right? And this is what they're doing. And and therefore, we need to change how that story is told. Because if we continue to speak of it as um, power here only and not acknowledge the type of power that others have elsewhere, then we are just perpetuating the same narrative, except in a different way. And, um, and, and it's not going to help us. And I think that, you know, uh, as a sector, uh, for me, we're trying to do that, not just as Christian Aid, but I, I'm, I'm talking to my colleagues all the time in other organizations, and they're not blind to this. We're grappling with this. We're trying to learn from, you know, how is the private sector doing it? Is government doing it? How are other sectors working on this so that we can change this? you know, in terms of our communications and so on. Yeah. I mean, I think what the not-for-profit sector ought to be is the great radical um, force for change where, where we innovate, we, we show how things can be different. That's the whole history of the not-for-profit sector was in that, in trying to change things and challenge the way that things happen. And, and it, it, unfortunately, if you look at the not-for-profit sector in both the UK and the UK-based NGO sector, you know, it, 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 we've become part of the way that things happen over the last 50 years. And we're not that great force for innovation and change and drastically doing things differently. Because as, as you said, Amanda, you know, there could well have been brilliant ways of raising money 40 years ago that were then raising the funds and enabling people and enabling good things to happen. But most organisations are still doing it in, in very similar ways. And, it, you, you know, we're not there. We, we ought to be the sector. You know, and I, I think, in, it, you, you know, repeat it globally in the UK. It should be the not-for-profit sector. That's that the, the brave, the real catalyst to drive massive change and to come up with the innovative ideas, to challenge and to do things differently. And I just don't think the sector does that very well. I think the sector gets into too much of a self-perpetuation mode. So actually, what a lot of international charities do is try and raise money in the UK just to keep themselves going yeah. and to keep to keep funding the staff they've got in the UK, rather than looking at radical ways of changing the way they do things to to do exactly what you were saying the sector needs, which is challenge the way that the, the, the that things work, challenge the inherent ways that the, where, where power sits. But we've got to challenge ourselves and do things differently ourselves if we're going to do that. On that note, are you guys conscious of examples of charities that are doing things radically differently that you can point to and say, yeah, that's how the sector needs to be evolving in the future? I, I think um, I would, I would, this is self-saving, but actually Christian Aid has not remained, <laughs> has, has not remained static. Yeah. I'm sure that quite a number of you know that we are going through massive change at the moment. And it's not just change in terms of uh, uh, looking at our staff, you know, our headcount. It's really about, you know, we are working in o- almost 40 countries. And asking ourselves the question, is this the best model for us to deliver greater impact? And our answer has been no. We have to look at power. We have to look at prophetic voice. We have to look at extreme poverty. We have to get into those places that are hardest to reach. And we can only do this effectively uh, if, one, 
we are working in a smaller number of countries. And two, which is my second point, uh, if you take, for example, and we don't work in Somalia, but I met uh, a woman called Nasra Ishmael, and she works uh, for the Somalia uh, NGO Consortium. And they come together. This is a local, national um, and they've come together in a participatory way to really uh, begin to address humanitarian issues. And I think that when we talk about learning, let's not just think that we can learn only from ourselves here in the UK or learn with, from others in Europe or maybe North America. Let's really think about um, the creativity and innovation that's coming from those countries that we're working in. You know, at the UK, uh, the recent UK Investment Summit, there was a guy uh, called Charles who was talking about how he, you know, how he became so creative and innovative because of necessity. And for me, I would like to learn from them. And that's what we're trying to do. So um, I think we are beginning to change um, as a sector. And I, so I don't know any of our members who get up in the morning and in order to try and perpetuate their own model. They're yeah. about creating impact and they're always looking at exploring how do we respond to the massive issues like climate change. Climate change is going to completely redefine the development agenda. Um, how do we have projects on the ground that promote resilience um, at, for the communities? How do we actually have real conversations about power. There are a number of organisations that are looking at, uh, rather than being a federated model, becoming a, a looser network um, where power is distributed um, equally and decisions are made on the ground. At Bond, we have 40 working groups working together collaboratively on a range of different issues from the SDGs right through to how do we understand our impact, trying to do things better as a sector. I would challenge us that we need to do more. We need to look harder at the changes that are coming to capture things like technology much more proactively and creativity on the ground because I don't know that we're doing that effectively enough. Um, and also really pick up on Amanda's point about how do we challenge the system so that the development pathways and the contribution that we are making actually um, gets us to greater sustainability and gives us half a chance of achieving the sustainable development goals. See, I would, I would say that, yeah, perhaps most bond members don't wake up every day and come in and think, how do I perpetuate the way that we do things? But I would hazard a very good guess that 90% of them are still doing things in the same way they were 20 years ago. And, and for me, that's the problem with the sector, that a lot of people go, oh, we need to change things, we recognise we need to change things, but they don't. Um, and so the ways that the sector fundraises, the ways that the sector makes decisions, the ways that it can sp spend two years making decisions about things that could have happened in half an hour, it, it, it just carries on and on and on. The, the kind of changes that you've, Amanda's talked about at Christian, great, good for you. That, that, those, that's the kind of braveness and boldness that's needed. I'm, I'd hazard a guess that there's a lot of resistance to a lot of that, that change and it's quite tough to, to drive that through because the sector will naturally resist a lot of change. You asked if there are the good examples. I, I've seen some brilliant examples of how not-for-profit organisations can evolve and change in the last couple of years and every single one of those examples has been in South Asia. Uh, where if you look at India, um, over the last 15 years, there's been a huge reduction of aid going into India. And it has forced 
the, the not-for-profit sector there to work in a different way because they can't just write applications to big donors anymore. They have to look creatively at different ways of securing funding. They have to look at outcomes-based financing. They have to look at social finance. They have to look at private investment. They have to look at partnerships with the private sector. And it's forced the sector to change. And it is now a, a much more creative, innovative, fast-moving, evidence-based, results-focused sector than the UK charity sector is, which, which let's be honest, is not evidence-based, it's not results-based, um, and it still operates in a very similar ways to the way that it always has. And always has. And so sometimes it can be those external things that force the changes that absolutely need to happen. Uh, most organisations are not going to, you know, there are, there are 59 global water NGOs. Uh, you, you know, apparently there's only two global aircraft manufacturers, but there are 59 global water NGOs. Why don't they all merge into one or two? Mm. Uh, the, the mergers and takeovers it just doesn't happen in our sector it happens in every other sector but not our sector there's a lot of change that needs to happen um, and is happening perhaps not fast enough for some but it, it's definitely on the horizon thank you all so much for joining us um, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to join us I should mention you can find out more about this issue in the latest edition of Third Sector magazine which is out now So Lumos is a charity founded by Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling, which campaigns to end the institutionalisation of children around the world. Its latest campaign, hashtag helping not helping, takes aim at what it calls orphanage tourism. And unusually for a charity, it's encouraging people not to take part in certain volunteering projects, warning that they may be fueling family separations and child trafficking. Well, we're joined by Chloe Setter, who's the charity's head of anti-trafficking. Chloe, thank you for joining us today. So to get started, can you explain what you mean by orphanage tourism and kind of what makes it problematic? Okay, so in the last uh, several few decades, there's built up a sort of almost a rite of passage of particularly Western young people, um, often on gap years and so on, who go and as part of their travels, go and volunteer or visit orphanages. We also see um, people who are on their holidays doing that as part of tour packages, sometimes kind of things that they haven't planned necessarily, but it's like tagged on to a tour in a local area or it might be something they seek to do while, whilst they're in on their holiday. And there's been uh, a, there's a growing evidence base uh, about the harms of this to children uh, for, for several reasons. So primarily we know that this kind of short-term unskilled volunteers coming in, out, in and out of vulnerable children's lives um, can create attachment disorders. Um, if you think these are children who already have been separated from their primary caregivers and families and then, the, you know, they're then having a sort of stream, a kind of rotating door, if you like, of well-meaning people who are coming in and out of their lives and they're forming attachments with them and then they leave. Um, you can only start to think over a period of time what damage that can do to, to a child. So that's one of the harms. Also, the fact that generally these are unskilled people who don't have the right experience to work with, with vulnerable children or training. Often there are no safety checks and vetting and and the, and the right safeguards in place uh, to work with vulnerable children. And then finally, what we've also been able to document is a, uh, a, the link between uh, people who volunteer and visit orphanages and, and how it's creating an orphanage industry, a business, if you like, where children are separated from their families deliberately and in some cases trafficked to, to cater for this demand um, from, from tourists and so on. OK, so tell us about hashtag helping not helping. 
Well, hashtag help, the Helping Not Helping campaign um, was launched by our founder, J.K. Rowling, back in October. It's a three-year campaign. and We're trying really to change social attitudes about volunteering and visiting orphanages. Um, broadly, our, our research has shown that young people, um, like UK students, for example, are not aware of the, of the harms um, and they really believe that they're doing something good. And that's been perpetuated often in social media images and, and you know, people coming back with positive stories in some cases, um, because even when you go you don't necessarily realize the harm that you're having after you leave so what we're saying to, to people is that children are not a tourist attraction um, and don't don't just go in and think you're helping you've got to know that you're helping um, and we're really pleased that just before we launched the campaign that the UK government launched new official travel advice um, which warns about the serious unintended consequences of, of this sort of activity and and the link to child exploitation so we're really hoping that young people and, and others who who might travel in this way heed that advice and actually think how can I really help these children? Because there are better ways of doing it. It's not about telling people not to volunteer or not to use their goodwill. You know, that's a precious gift that people have and want to give. We want to encourage that definitely. But visiting orphanages is certainly not helping. And so how has the campaign been received so far? We've had an excellent response. Um, obviously, you get pushback um, from some areas. Um, you know, people who have supported orphanages financially or through visiting them um, sometimes have a very personal connection to them. Um, and what we're trying to say to those people sensitively is it's not about shaming someone for, you know, good intentions that they've had. It's about doing things differently now that we have so much evidence to show how harmful orphanage, orphanages are for children. Um, that is not the best way to care for children. Children need a family setting in order to thrive in order to develop and have better life outcomes. So we're trying to work with people to, to change those attitudes and to change systems, reform the systems of care, that, institutional care that exist in many countries. Um, but in terms of the, what we're asking in the campaign, we're trying to change government policies around the world so that we can replicate this travel advice so that other countries are issuing the same sort of advice to their citizens about the harms of orphanage tourism. And we're also asking uh, UK universities and schools to adopt a policy um, against orphanage tourism. We've had a number of them sign up already and we're encouraging others to do the same and asking students to call on their universities to make this change because often it's done by students who think it will help improve their um, employability or their applications to universities. So we need them to take a stand. And finally, we need businesses as well to do the same. And we've, again, we've had a number of businesses sign up who have decided to make a stand and say we're not doing this through our CSR policy, we're not going to do this um, through our business if, that, if they're a travel company. Um, so I think little by little we're, we're beginning to chip away at this, this quite established practice. And would you say that, is there any evidence that there are volunteering charities which are contributing to this problem? And if there are, what steps can they be taking now to avoid being part of that? Well, it's not simply a case of volunteering charities. I mean, there are a lot of UK registered charities that do provide support or run orphanages even in other countries. Um, so the message that we're, we're trying to relay really is people, um, you know, to look at the evidence, to, to speak to us and others in the sector who, who are working and, and know how to move safely away from orphanage support. Um, it's not something that can be done overnight. Of course. Um, it, it can be dangerous to do it too mm. quickly. You can't just pull the plug on, on, you know, a group, on funding for a group of children. But there are ways of doing it and it's been successfully done in many countries around the world. Um, and that 80% of children who live in orphanages have a living parent. And most people aren't aware of that. The children are there because of usually prevent reasons, poverty, um, lack of uh, community resources and, and education and so on. Um, so if, if that money was better invested in communities and families, those children would be able to stay 
and grow up in a family and if not then develop the services like foster care um so we we really want people to 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 take that on board and to to change their models it's about transitioning it's about moving with the times and and doing what's best in the best interests of children how can charities demonstrate to potential volunteers that the opportunities they're offering are legitimate and how, how do they make them look legitimate well firstly we would say to any charity that does place volunteers is to not offer orphanage or residential institutional placements um particularly for unskilled um people but i mean really any any person who's looking to volunteer needs to be looking at, at a charity's credentials in terms of are they employing local people? Is there a long-term plan for that community and exit plan? What are their child protection policies and safeguarding? What vetting do they do? Do they do training before they send volunteers? Um, and, and obviously speak to the experts. We've got, we partnered on the campaign with VSO um, and those who have all that experience of, of what good volunteering and ethical volunteering can look like. And it's an absolutely wonderful thing that we want to encourage people to do and to keep doing but um, do but it in just, the right way in yeah. a sustainable way and, and with that exactly exit exactly and to really make sure you are genuinely helping not just thinking that you mm. are well thank you so much for joining us Chloe this month the children's charity UNICEF announced plans to introduce an equalised parental leave policy for all staff currently only the parents giving birth or one adoptive parent are entitled to 52 weeks leave while new fathers can only take two weeks leave on full pay. But under the new policy, all new caregivers, regardless of gender, will be entitled to up to 52 weeks leave. Parents will receive full pay for the first six weeks, then half pay until week 30. After this point, they will receive the statutory parental leave rate as set by the government until 39 weeks. So here to tell us more about it is Martin Dicker, Director of People at UNICEF UK. So hi, Martin. Thanks for being on mic with us today. Um, So tell us, what made you decide to offer both sets of parents 52 weeks of parental leave at UNICEF? Well, there was a number of factors, actually, and the starting point of it was the UNICEF's Early Moments Matter report. Mm -hmm. And within that, it talks about the critical importance of the period of time from the conception of a child to its first two years in life. And during that stage, it's really critical to the overall brain development. And it's when you get the love, the care, the kindness that goes into that. And that is an important trajectory into later life. So parents play a crucial role uh, Mm. during this point, of course. And as employers, we're responsible for providing some of that time that enables them to, to make the most of that. So whilst that report was being launched, colleagues internally, we were having lots of debates, having ideas, sessions and talking about, well, what do we want to do? And there was no doubt during that, the opportunity to equalise parental uh, leave came through as a really strong and popular suggestion. So I chose not to mention, it's, you know, it felt like the right thing to do. Um, looking at it from a child rights perspective, it felt like the right thing to do for employees, but also from a broader societal perspective as well. And I think it's upon all of us as employees to think about what more policies can we design from a more inclusive perspective that really aligns with what your colleagues want. What impact are you hoping it will have on staff and on the charity more generally? Well, firstly, as far as impact, I think uh, we're probably thinking about children first, as you would imagine, and the impact there is huge, um, you know, on their development. But beyond that, for our colleagues, I mean, a really great opportunity. If you think of an example where I may have had a colleague that might have taken a couple of weeks paternity leave in the past, and now they'll have an opportunity of being off for a far longer period of time, for up to 52 weeks at various levels of pay. 
that's going to help them bond with a child. It's going to help them um, and their partner supporting each other during, you know, a really key moment and, and what can be a difficult moment as well as a really fun one. Um, so no doubt they'll be able to help each other. But also we really hope this starts a conversation. You know, we really want, you know, what we're doing and trying to lead the way, as we should as a child rights organisation, to challenge other employers. There's 13 mm. million working parents in the UK. Mm. And the reality is, is that many people are not having those same opportunities. So we really want to, I suppose, challenge some of those, you know, the roles and the stereotypes mm. around um, caring. And hopefully this can be something that leads to better gender equality. And when you're trying to be that kind of flagship charity and um, leading the way on, on this new policy, you know, how easy was that in practice to implement? Were there any, was there anything that was particularly challenging about it? Or was there anything that surprised you once you would had that conversation internally and decided, let's roll this out? How did that how how easy was that to actually unfold? Well, I mean... I suppose during the deliberations and in taking uh, a policy such as this to our board, which is which is quite a you know quite a change, I have to say I remember thinking to myself and having conversations with the team. Look, if this isn't us, if this isn't UNICEF driving the way on something like this, who who could it be? I mean, as a child rights organisation, so I suppose we took it on a bit of a mission for us to embark on, and they, for that reason, I suppose it's such an alignment with our vision, um, with our values as an organisation that they weren't challenges per se but it needs some planning you know we we made this decision back in October and you know we brought it in at the start of a new financial year so you know we could plan for it you can't suddenly have a colleague going off work that wasn't planned for more than a couple of weeks suddenly be off for what could be six months or nine months or even 12 months so it does take some work looking at financial projections and thinking about what impact this will have on the business. And how have you found the action to be internally and externally? Well, I have to say we made the most of this internally. I'll be I'll be honest, because um, we were excited about this opportunity when we launched it. And, you know, let's be fair, a lot of HR policies are, are not the most exciting of launches. Oh, I think that's <laughs> <laughs> how unkind to HR. But, but on this one, we, we went for it, if I'm honest. We got a number of us uh, within the people team. We got our, our children involved and we talked to them about what we were doing and what we'd implemented. And we wanted their reaction. So we had a video that launched it with some of our children jumping around the sofas, whooping excitedly, doing cartwheels through their garden. So, you know, we really made the most of this. And our colleagues responded so positively. And, you know, for lots of reasons, not just what it meant for them, but actually what this meant in the support for the partners, what this meant to the challenges for society. So it was a real people were really, really thrilled. And even to be honest, even this week, I've had two people, separate people, just whilst I'm grabbing a glass of water, come up to me again as we've mm. started to talk about this externally, about how excited they are and how this really aligns. So people are feeling really proud mm. about what we've done. And Again, externally, it's, you know, it's had a really good response so mm. far. And some of the comments, whether it be on Twitter or LinkedIn, really, really positive about us as an employer and about, you know, being an inspiring place to work. And I think that's a great thing. I think what's interesting about shared parental leave, however, is, you know, obviously this has been knocking around in, in the private and the public sector for quite a while. It was a flagship policy under Theresa May's government. What I'm interested in is that... Um, you know, so far, take up has actually been relatively low of parents. And, and, and that's about broad issues around things like, you know, there is a financial hit for taking on shared parental leave. Um, and, and, and broadly, you know, we haven't seen enormous take up. Why do you think it's important that charities are advocating for this as an option, even if parents aren't necessarily taking it up at this stage? Yeah, and I think, that, as you're right, there's a number of reasons. And I think the take up is under 10%. Mm. Um, so it, it has been a challenge. And to be honest, it's one of those 
HR professionals that would have had to administer this, it, it's pretty complicated. Uh, you know, and there's lots of reasons for it, and there's lots of good literature out there that explains some of it. And, and part of that is the challenge. If if you're the non-gestational parent wanting that time off, wanting to support the partner and, and have that important opportunity to bond with a child it does mean they have to go back to work. So this isn't, you know, it sort of feels like in some ways it doesn't work for all. What we're doing in, in challenging that is actually giving the opportunity, regardless of how long you've worked for the organisation, regardless of your gender or sexual orientation, to take that time off. And therefore, I think it's really critical. And, you know, yes, there might be um, some financial costs to doing this, but we strongly believe, one, it's the right thing to do from the rights of a child, but also it's the right thing to do supporting your colleagues. The retention, this will hopefully improve the well-being um, and people are feeling inspired and motivated to work for us and our brand gets enhanced as a result so you know it feels like absolutely the right thing to do and finally what advice would you offer to charities on shared parental leave if they want to implement it yeah absolutely well i think there's, there's three things i uh, genuinely i would say have a look at the unicef's early moments matter report i think it gives some really useful data and it will help as a start of a conversation so i would certainly look at that as is the case, and I would probably say to response to most questions when you're talking about your colleagues, is talk to them, talk to your colleagues about it, find out what's important to them. And we spent a considerable amount of time getting their views and making sure that this was a fit and an alignment with our organisation and our mission. And then I think finally, um, you know, it's tempting just to look at this and weigh up the cost, but I think it's worth looking at, you know, the broader benefits we'll have for, for you as an organisation and ultimately come back to the impact on the child. I mean, that's mm. where it starts and thinking about this is the right thing to do. Brilliant. Well, Martin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Great. Thank you. We'll be back with another episode next month. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Thank you again to Natasha Abramson, Stephanie Draper, Richard Hawkes, Amanda Cozy McWashy, Chloe Setter, and Martin Dicker for joining us. To the producer, Anushka Tate, for Rethink Audio. And to you for listening.